Okay, so since we are nonetheless in Heidelberg, which for me has certain philosophical associations, I hope you will pardon me if I will, beginning with some new, not contained here, philosophical, sorry, political reflections, nonetheless go into philosophy, into the very basic question of how to read Hegel today, and then return to our situation. So, let me begin with a simple question, crisis. We hear all the time around, we are in big crisis, and so on and so on, but Listen, what happened to me when I recently visited some Far Eastern countries, China, South Korea, and so on? They gave me a wonderful answer. They told me, what crisis are you talking about? Look at the so-called BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Look at South Korea, Singapore, even Latin American countries, in Europe even, Poland, even many sub-Saharan countries. Economy is doing, it never was doing as well as it is doing now there. The losers are only Western Europe and up to a point the United States. So they claim if you look at the entire world, at least at the level of brutal economic data, capitalism was never doing as well as today. Never well so many people elevated above the poverty level and so on and so on. So, uh, incidentally, a nice symptom of this is recent situation in Portugal, you know, Angola and Mozambique were their old colonies. But you know that now Portuguese people, because Portugal is in big crisis, they are quite massively returning to Angola and Mozambique this time not as colonizers, but as immigrant workers, and so on. So again, they are telling me, you, a very nice point they are making, you Western leftists, you like to criticize often in a masochistic way all the sins of Eurocentrism, and so on. But here, you are Eurocentric. What crisis? You are in crisis. The world is not in crisis. Again, on average, it's exploding. On average, never was capitalism uh, being in the process of development as fast as now. And then I nonetheless answered them. I told them, okay, don't get too many anti-colonialist orgasms like the events of outside Europe. The question to be raised is, if Europe is in gradual decay, what is replacing the ideological hegemony, hegemony of Europe? The answer is, it is mostly so-called capitalism with Asian values, which, as we all know, of course, has nothing to do with Asian people and everything with the clear and present tendency of contemporary capitalism to limit or even suspend democracy. So, uh, I think that, uh, again, this is why I think now it's the time to return to Eurocentrism. What I fear is that this new, so much celebrated states of worldwide dynamic capitalism, I don't think I like it very much. 
because to propose a very simple analysis, till now there was one very good argument for capitalism, which was, okay, sometimes it needed 10, 20 years of military dictatorship, but sooner or later in South Korea, in Chile, and so on, when things started to function, it did generate a demand for democracy. I'm afraid that this epoch is over. Um, some months ago, I was in a debate with Francis Fukuyama, and he laughed so much when I told him, okay, let's say you were right, the big triumph of worldwide capitalism, but admitted that we ex-communists had our revenge. We are more and more appearing in China and so on as the best managers of this new capitalism. Uh, so, again, let's not uh, celebrate too much this new phase of capitalism. Next thing, a brutal thing which has to be said, does this mean then that we will have revolts, uh, resistances only in Europe, all the uh, demonstrations now? Ah, here some things have to be clarified, which some leftists don't like to hear. You know, people rebel not when things are really bad. Revolutions happen when things get a little bit better, but then expectations develop even faster, and you have this gap between hopes, expectations, and reality. Let me take the big example, French Revolution. It happened, every history will tell you, when in France the king and the nobles were for decades gradually losing their full hold on power. They didn't attack when the king was strong, but the king was weakened for, for decades, immediately, basically, after the death of uh, Le Roi du Soleil, of uh, uh, Louis XIV. Let's take an anti-communist example. The 1956 Budapest uh, anti-Soviet uprising. My God, do you know that for two years, Nath Imre, was already prime minister, the situation was slowly opening and so on. So again, the revolt didn't happen when Stalinist oppression was really, really bad. No, it happened when things were already opening. I think the same thing can be said even about the so-called Arab Spring. Mubarak was not a top, he was bad. I sympathized, I was connected with Egyptian rebels. But they admitted to me, Things were developing a new middle class of educated, connected to internet young people emerged. And it's precisely this partial development which created conditions for rebellion. This is why I think the Chinese communists are right to be in panic. Precisely because on average, Chinese are now living considerably better than 40 years ago. This is the situation where you get rebellions. And that's the other side of Chinese economic miracle. You know that when I was in China, they told me we are having 20,000 serious disturbances per year. I, I asked them, cut this Confucian bullshit. What do you mean by serious disturbances? Translate it into normal language. And they did it. They told me, okay, serious disturbances, we mean local unrest, strike demonstration, which is so strong that local police cannot deal with it and 
federal police or army has to intervene. 20,000 per year. Uh, which is why, again, I think that, you see, rebellion, chaos, political chaos, and progress are not opposed. It's not, okay, we will make lives of the people better and then they will be satisfied. No, it's the, if we have to learn something from history, it's the opposite, which is why the sad point is, I doubt there will be a big rebellion in North Korea. Maybe there will be, but precisely because they are now already allowing internet and so on, all that stuff. Uh, now, in order not to miss this link between progress and instability, we should always focus on how what first appears as an incomplete realization of some social project signals its imminent limitation. This will bring us immediately to heaven. What do I mean by this? There is a wonderful, from my youth, really when I was young, in the 60s, I remember, apocrypha, probably, story about John Galbraith, you remember, from the 60s, a well-known left uh, Keynesian economist who visited, uh, at that time, I think late 50s, early 60s, Soviet Union. And before going there, he wrote to his ex, Trotskyist, but then anti-communist philosopher friend, Sidney Cook. He wrote to him, don't worry, I will not be seduced by the Soviets, I will not return to the United States from my trip to Russia, claiming that they have socialism there. And Cook, a reactionary but intelligent one, answered him, but that's what worries me. Not that you will return as a convinced uh, socialist, but that you will return claiming that Soviet Union is not socialist. That is to say, what worried Cook was the naive defense of the purity of the concept. If things go wrong with building a socialist society, so the defenders were saying, this does not invalidate the idea itself, it just means we didn't implement it properly. You know, that's what, for example, old Trotskyists or so-called democratic communists are saying. But communism wasn't even, till now, really tested, tried. It was all false and so on. Here, unfortunately, although I remain a communist in some sense, I'm a Hegelian. No, nonetheless, the realization, the of a concept is the moment of its, of its truth. But I think we should be honest enough and say the same about today's market fundamentalism. Are they acting exactly in the same way as old fanatical communists who said if things went wrong, if millions died, no, this is not the true communism. When during the recent TV debate in France, where I participated, Guy Sorma, otherwise a friend of mine, but a total fanatic, like worse than Ayn Rand, fanatic of capitalism, he claimed that democracy and capitalism necessarily go together. Then I asked him the obvious, stupid, common sense question. What about China today? Oh, he answered, in China there is no capitalism. You see, this logic I'm afraid of. You stick to your ideal, and if you have obviously a capitalism without democracy, the answer was, oh, that cannot be a true uh, capitalism. You can easily identify 
the mistake here. It's the same mistake as in the well-known joke about paradoxes of definition used often by one of my big teachers, Jacques Lacan. My fiancée is never late for an appointment because the moment she is late, she is no longer my fiancée. <laughs> this is how today's apologies of market explained the crisis of 2008. It was not the failure of the free market which caused it, but the excessive state regulation. That is to say, the fact that our market economy was not a true one, that it was still too much regulated by state and so on and so on. What has this to do with hell? I think the great Hegelian dialectical move when a project fails is to make the shift from imperfect realization of a concept. The crucial dialectical shift is then to see how this imperfect realization must be grounded in some imperfection flaw of the pure concept itself. And I think, again, this is what we should learn to do today. How? And that's the problem. Because now, about all these protests, which are obviously bearing witness to the fact that there is something problematic with today's uh, capitalism, all the rage exploding all around Europe today. Uh, the Italian autonomist Franco Berardi, who is, I think, more intelligent than Tony Negri, and uh, one should read him, wrote how this rage exploding today, I quote from Berardi, is impotent and inconsequential, as consciousness and coordinated action seem beyond the reach of present society. Look at the European crisis. Never in our life have we faced a situation so charged with revolutionary opportunities. Never in our life have we been so impotent. Never have intellectuals and militants been so silent, so unable to find a way to show a new possible direction. I write about this in the very last pages of the book. Namely, I think that the great loser of these last years of crisis is precisely the radical left, I think. From my youth, I remember when things were functioning more or less well, at least for us in the developed West, the radical left was saying, oh, you live in, you live in apparent uh, welfare, but you live in illusions, wait, there will be a crisis, and then, well, now we have a crisis, and basically left did not come with a viable alternative project. And I don't mean by this, of course, a detailed plan, but just with general idea, like what to do. I was in Wall Street, occupied in here, in Bersenbach, in Frankfurt, and I was always just asking the demonstrator one same and the same question for which I was almost attacked as being a saboteur and so on. This Freudian question to me, what do you want? And it's incredible what I got. We want a just society. I told them, okay, fuck off Hitler wanted this. Go what? We want a society where uh, money serves people and people don't serve money. I told them Hitler would subscribe this immediately. Because money which 
doesn't serve people is controlled by Jews and so on and so on. And then, you know, basically you see that, apart from these vague ideas, oh, we, we, we need more a just society and so on, what you get is some pseudo-neo-Keynesianism. Not exactly to abolish capitalism, but more welfare, more money for this, for that. Uh, and then, retroactively, I think we can discover that this isn't really a new phenomenon. Recently, I read a good book on Mexican Revolution. In November 1914, this was a big event. Uh, Pancho Villa from North, Emiliano Zapata with his people from South, they occupied Mexico City. They took over. And it's so sad. You know what happened? For two months, they were there in Mexico City debating what to do, and then they left home. <laughs> they were not defeated by counter-revolution. They simply didn't know, believe me, you don't believe me, they simply didn't know what to do, they, they withdrew, they withdrew home. So, uh, so, what's the problem here? Here I follow another guy whom I appreciate, the British art theorist, uh, T.J. Clark. He's well known, his more famous art theory, and it's a wonderful theory, was his detailed interpretation of, uh, you know, the famous painting by Jean-Louis David, The Death of Marat. He claims this is the first modernist painting. And he is right, why? You should look again at that painting. Did you notice what's so strange about that painting? The lower half, you know, about uh, the dying, blah, blah, blah. And you know what's the upper half? Nothing. Just darkness. <coughs> and I claim this painting, singularity, is a proof that my beloved Jacobins were not totalitarians. Because imagine the same painting in a properly totalitarian society, let's say Soviet Union in the 30s. It's clear. How would it have been structured? You would have Marat dying or death in a bathtub, then you would have in the other half a kind of a, 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 like in comics balloon, and then you will see the noble thoughts of dying Marat, happy French people dancing in freedom or whatever. No, no. Isn't this a beautiful gesture? All the nightmarish abyss, the darkness, remains there. It's not covered up by the fantasy of the bright, of the bright future. So again, T.J. Clark made this point very nicely of how, now again, I simplify very much, now I come so into the philosophical part, of how from Marx's time onwards, the left is, and this is my term, not Clark's, the left is caught in what I am tempted to call the Helderin Paradigm. Wasn't that guy also somewhere here? Yes. The Bohasta, we are in home territory, oh yeah. By Helderin Paradigm, I mean, of course, what as the far is, that's just written there out. That is to say, you pre perceive your own epoch as the epoch of extreme danger, but then, you know, we are close to the Kairos reversal. So, his idea is even the most radical anti-Stalinist leftists. They claim, yeah, everything was wrong, 
in 20th century, Stalinism and so on, but don't lose hope. We are today, because of ecology, technology, approaching this point of great danger, we can all die, ecology, DNA, we can all be manipulated, but there is a hope for the big awakening. And T.J. Clark uses a wonderful evil metaphor of, you know that, the first Chinese emperor, the Terracotta army. He said, as if we all still hope there is a big proletarian Terracotta army buried somewhere which will awaken and do the big authentic revolution which this time will not be alienated but true immediate democracy, whatever you want and so on and so on. And his claim is maybe we should break with this basic paradigm. Uh, there is another German philosopher who, in a little bit half forgotten today, but he's not a complete idiot, he should maybe be. Maybe you know him, uh, Karl Löwig. He developed a nice this point of precisely uh, this eschatological notion of the greatest danger but then reversal, and he traced it from Christianity to Nietzsche, Heidegger, and so on. And I think even Derrida is part, Jacques Derrida is part of this time. You know, he idea that now we are the moment of, of extreme tension of metaphysics of presence, but things are already uh, turning around and so on and so on. Metaphysics has exhausted this potential. The, the, the care, the turn is near. Uh, now, uh, I think it's clear that Marx himself is part of this logic. The whole notion of proletarian revolution is, again, what does Gefahris best does threaten the house? Does Gefahris the total self-alienation of proletarian, of proletarian reduction to this pure zero point of radical alienation? But then, there is a possibility here for things to turn around. Now, this is the reason that I think what we need today is a return from Marx to Hegel. Because although Hegel, now comes the a little bit more boring uh, philosophical part, I think that although Hegel is often perceived as the very model of this logic, you know, negation, then negation goes to the extreme, but of all, then you have the magical reversal, personal reconciliation. The Hegel precisely does not follow this model. That we have to learn a lot from Hegel today. Hegel here is much further than Marx. Why? With Marx, again, in his famous manuscript on the pre-capitalist mode of economic production, this is really the most pseudo-Hegelian Marx. He develops how, you know, you begin in prehistory with substantial identity between workers and the objective conditions of working process. Then the whole history is the history of gradual alienation. The, the objective conditions of production are torn away from workers and in capitalism this process reaches its high point. You have 
proletarians, es pure, es Marx putin, va dir que hi havia tres substàncies de subjectivitat, but besides this radical alienation creates the point of subjectivity, collective subjectivity for Marx, outside substance, which can then recreate the unity a collective subject can reappropriate objective uh, conditions. Here is a nice quote, I'm sorry, in English. This capitalist extreme form of alienation in which, in the guise of the relationship of the capital towards wage labor, labor, productive activity, appears as opposed to its own conditions and to its own product, is a necessary point of transition, and for that reason is in itself, in an inverted form, posited on its head, it already contains the disintegration of all limited presuppositions of production, and even creates and produces the unconditional presuppositions of production, and thereby all material conditions for the total universal development of the productive forces of the individuals." End of quote. So again, the idea is that history is thus the gradual process of the separation of subjective activity from these objective conditions, and again, when the danger, the alienation is at its worst, the possibility is given for collective subjectivity to reappropriate the alienated uh, content you are a little bit a professional philosopher, you immediately can note how, and I wonder why more people didn't notice this, how ambiguous in Marx himself, but also later in Jan Lukács Adorno, the Marxist reference to Hegel is, I'm talking about serious Marxist, not those general ontology the materials, because on the one hand, to simplify it, you have Jan Lukács or you have Marx in Grundrisse, where the Hegelian dialectics is conceived, as we have just seen, as the mystified expression, articulation of the process of liberation. What Hegel is describing as subject appropriating alienated substance is the idealist version of the working class as collective reappropriation of substantial alienated wealth. But then we have the opposite reading in late Marx, Capital, and for example in Adorno or Helmut Reichel with the Hegel Capital, Schuller, which was very important, I think, in the 60s, where they claim on the contrary that Hegel's logic is not the logic of liberation, but it's an idealist reproduction of the very logic of capitalist alienation. So that revolution is really a step outside dialectics, in the sense that speculative dialectics is an idealist expression of speculative movement of the capital. But my point here is, again, is this process, which sounds very Hegelian, we begin with substantial unity, we get gradual alienation, and then when the alienation is at its lowest, precisely when the subject is reduced to zero, 
this hero as the negative form of absolute negativity can reassert itself appropriate all context. Uh, is this really happening? If you allow me some 20 minutes before conclusion, I will try to prove that this is not the case. That Hegel is not this triad. Okay, there are some ABC things to say first, like when idiots reduce Hegel to thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you know, know that. It's incredible how many people don't know that Hegel never used these terms. It's some of them don't know who in the 1800s forms. But, okay. Now, what do I mean by this? Ah, now I will make some crazy steps. Uh, I claim that the basic point of Hegel is that a typical Hegelian cycle, I will talk at very abstract level, although I will use some concrete examples, but conceptually I will remain abstract there. You don't have some immediate unity which then disintegrates. The first step of the relative process is the fall itself. And the fall retroactively creates what it is the fall from. For example, you find this clearly in Hegel's wonderful reading of the Bible, when he says, paradise is simply animal kingdom, and it's through the fall that when you fall into sin, this very movement retroactively creates what it is the fall from. You don't, you don't fall from goodness. You fall directly into sin. What does this mean? Let me give you a very weird example, which I think wonderfully makes this point. And it's a very problematic political example. From Islam, in the fall of 2006, Sheikh Taj bin al Hilali, Australia's most senior Muslim cleric, caused a scandal. Maybe you remember it from the newspapers. A group of Muslim men in Australia were jailed for gang rape. They raped a young girl. And uh, uh, he defended them. He said the young girl should be blamed. Why? Here is the quote. It's horrible. And I claim, don't hit me yet, I'm a feminist, but I claim to provoke you that there is an unexpected pro feminist dimension in this. Here is the quote If you take uncovered meat and place it outside on the street, and the dogs come and eat it. Whose fault it is? The dogs or the uncovered meat? The uncovered meat is the problem. In other words, it's why did the girl walk there alone? Even if you dress offering herself, she's to be blamed. Now, of course, I'm well aware that this is a scandalous comparison between a woman who is not well and raw, uncovered meat. I certainly don't agree, don't agree with this. But, okay, now we will say, okay, you are now playing like uh, a bad, bad uh, magician with that pull the rabbit out. Where is your stupid feminism here, no? Ah, think a little bit further. Don't you notice something very strange in this story, metaphor? The guy, this cleric, compares us men to raw dogs. 
If we are not guilty, it means when I saw a half-dressed woman, I didn't do anything. It's my nature, I just jumped on her or whatever. <laughs> like, we are not treated men in this story as ethical agents. We can't do it. We are like dogs. His metaphor. He attacks women because implicitly he considers women the only ethically responsible ones. You see the paradox. Men are like dogs. I see a woman, I can't come to anything. The only one who should show restraint, that is to say, the only one who can be addressed as a potential ethical subject is, is, uh, uh, is the woman. Uh, and uh, I claim that uh, this is how we should even reread the Bible. Yes, Eve pulled Adam into sin, but he humanized Adam in this way. Adam without Eve is an animalist. No, I mean, Eve, like, uh, uh, it's okay to make the theoretical point. The innocence of paradise is another name for animal life. So that what the Bible calls for is nothing but the passage from animal life to properly human existence. It is thus the fall itself which creates the dimension from which it is the fall. Now, back to Islam, you will say, I'm dreaming here. It's a bad taste remark. It's more complex. You know, I'm opposed to Islam, don't misunderstand me here. But there's something interesting to note how, from the very beginning in Islam, man is not considered as someone who can have an access to truth without woman as a witness, as a guarantor. Let's go to the very top, Muhammad himself. You know, this is official story. You know, when the, that stupid angel Gabriel appeared to Muhammad, giving him the messages, do you know what's the official Islam story? Muhammad first thought, this is the voice of the devil. And then it's his wife, Kadia who convinced him that this is the truth. And the lesson is clear, you, that how, I can tell you dozens of other stories, how, uh, like, truth, truth cannot be violent, cannot be for the man, cannot be approached without woman, as in Lacanian terms, the big other, as the mediator. And this is nonetheless the wonderful ambiguity in, in Islam. Uh, it's, uh, I like this uh, uh, paradoxical, crazy points in history of religion. For example, my Jewish friends told me another one, which I love, uh, about God's omnipotence and so on. It's really the scene of Woody Allen uh, and Nicole realized. And I warn you, what I can tell you now, it may sound as a stupid joke, but this is sacred Talmud at two places. My Jewish friends gave me the exact quotation. It's the same story told two times there to simplify it in my other book, which will appear by Fisher next year. I hope you get further proper references. Uh, two big rabbis debate a theological point. And then uh, one 
of them who is losing the debate says, oh, let's call God himself, Jehovah, to come and be the judge. And really, then, God comes. The old man approaches them, and you know what happens then? The other guy who was winning the debate starts to shout at God. Listen, old man, like I translated classically. Fuck off, you did your job. You created the universe, you did it very badly, you did it whatever you could, now you leave to us educated people to do some theological thinking, go away. And it's a wonderful little God said, oh my God, my pupils beat me, but they arrived and ran so well. the highest point of Judaism, you know. So, uh, okay, I love this ambiguities, but let me go on here. Uh, 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 when I'm saying that the fall precedes what it is the fall from, so that you have to fall. Now this is much more radical than it may appear. I'm not making this simple, triadic statement like you have to fall to develop negativity in aggregated form and then to get it back. No, the one whom I really like here, my favorite theologist, who developed to the end this wrong reading of the falls, Nicholas Malbranche. He is Christianity at its craziest. Uh, in the best Pascalian tradition, Malbranche, in a way I claim, revealed the secret of Christianity. Namely, his Christology of Malbranche, no wonder he was immediately excommunicated after his death, is based on a very original answer to the question, why did God create the world? Malbranche's clear answer, so that God could bask in the glory of being celebrated by his creation. God wanted to be celebrated, God wanted recognition, so he created the world out of pure, he says this Malbranche, God created the world out of pure selfish vanity. He wanted to be praised, so he created the world and then people to celebrate him. Consequently, now things became theologically problematic. It was not that Christ came down to earth in order to deliver people from sin. On the contrary, Adam had to fall in order to enable Christ to come down to earth and dispel salvation. Balbranche applies here to God himself. This deep psychological insight which tells us that the saintly figure who sacrifices himself for the benefit of others to deliver them from their misery secretly wants the others to suffer misery so that he will be able to help them. Like the proverbial husband who works all the day to help his poor, crippled wife, but he would probably abandon her if she were to regain her health and turn into a successful career woman. You know, people, I think the, 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 the filthiest way to be evil is to be in this self-complacent way, good and sacrificial. You know, you sacrifice yourself to make it sure that the other is indebted to you and so on and so on. That's Malbranche developed this parallel to its conclusion. He claimed, Malbranche, 
that in the same way that the saintly person uses the suffering of others to bring about his own narcissistic satisfaction in helping those others suffering, God also ultimately, I quote Malbrons here, loves only himself and he pushes humans into misery so that then he can save me and be celebrated by them. From this, all this, Malbronf draw a terrifying consequence. It is not true that if Jesus Christ had not come to earth to deliver humanity, everyone would have been lost. Quite on the contrary, without Christ coming, nobody would have been lost. Every human, no, for him, uh, every human being had to fall so that Christ could come and deliver some of us. My brother's conclusion again is here shattered. Since the death of Christ is a key step in realizing the goal of creation, and then he says this, my brother, I quote it, at no time was God, the Father, happier than when he was observing his son suffering and dying on the cross. He says this was the moment of almost orgasmic happiness of God the Father. Not too bad for theological madness. But precisely, this is what happened. It's not, sometimes heaven is read like this. We have to fall so that we triumphantly return to ourselves. But what Hegel calls this afternoon, it's not this. Like, to evoke a more contemporary example. It's not that there had to be Holocaust so that we could get the state of Israel. It's not that God said, okay, let's organize Holocaust to help the Jews in the long term. No, this is not Hegel's list afternoon. I think Hegel is much more contingently open. Holocaust happened because people are genuinely evil, and then afterwards, in a kind of a bricolage, there may be beneficial consequences but they in no way justify the horror. There is no retroactive justification here. Uh, okay, I will try not to be too long, so I will uh, skip uh, how the logic that I'm trying to describe function. I think Wagner was here. Very Hegelian, you know, in the last, towards the end, famous lines from Parsifal, Die Wunde schließt, der Sperr nur what is Hegel saying here? Okay, the Wunde is basically spirit itself. Hegel says spirit is the Wunde, the wound of nature. But how is the wound closed? Not so that it's undone, that there is no wound, but that you radicalize, fully accept the wound itself. You know, so Hegel is much more ambiguous than people perceive when he claims that uh, the spirit uh, heals its own wounds. Yeah, but he heals them so that precisely what we lose in Verzönung is not the wound, but precisely that what allegedly preceded the wound. Like, we lose the very measure from which the wound appears as a wound. What do I mean by this? Now, I warn you, if you are sensitive, uh, uh, now comes a very dirty story. Uh, wonderful, I think deeply Christian, joke about Jesus Christ 
which makes this point. Uh, it was called, with me, of all people, I like it there, by a Christian Palestinian in Ramallah. Uh, the joke is this one. Uh, when Christ was alone reflecting in his tent the night before he was arrested and crucified, his apostles gathered around uh, and said, My God, our Lord did so much for us, and tomorrow he will die because they all knew it was part of the divine plan, the crucifixion. And they said, Shouldn't we bring some happiness to our master? Look, he didn't even spend the night with a woman. Does he deserve for the last evening to have some good sex? So they asked Mary Magdalene, wouldn't you go in there and seduce him? And of course, Magdalene, Mary being who she is, she said, of course, with joy and so on, you know. <laughs> so she goes into tent and the apostles wait around for some five minutes when she runs out with a terrifying cry. And they ask her, tell me, what happened? What happened? And she says, uh, uh, she says, uh, Horrible. First it began well. I started to dance in front of Christ. He looked at me nicely, kindly. Then I undressed myself. Then I spread my legs. I showed him my vagina intimate parts. And then Christ looked at my vagina and said, Oh, what a horrible wound. And put his palm Why not even 
counterpunch. Here is the quote, but let me try to explain it. It, find, it may appear uh, abstract, but it's crucial. Reflection, therefore, finds before it an immediate which it transcends and from which it is the return. But this return is only the presupposing of what reflection finds before it. What is thus found only comes to be through being left behind. The reflexive moment is to be taken as a, again, absolute Gegenstoss, absolute recoil upon itself. For the presupposition of the returning into self, that from which essence comes, is only in the return itself. This is the formula. What is found only comes to be to being left behind. Uh, let me give you now a big example to make all this clear, if it was not. I was in India two years ago. It didn't end there. Even something absolutely comical, I loved it, happened. I got engaged there in political debates and they, by they I mean my friends, Maoist, Naxalit rebels and the untouchables, the lowest, uh, converted me against Gandhi. My hero is now Dr. Ambedkar, a much more egalitarian, one of the untouchables, who was always in conflict with Gandhi. His name was that Gandhi was, sorry to use this word, a proper fascist. Why? Gandhi was not against castes. In a typical proto-fascist move, Gandhi just said all castes has, have their own dignity, even the lowest members of the lowest caste are children of God and so on. So, you know, like, let's recognize all their dignity, but we need castes and so on. So, you know what happened to me as an interview? It's a wonderful joke. When I returned after visiting India to Slovenia, a friend whose wife works as a clerk, as a Slovene Ministry of Foreign Affairs, told me that one week after my return, an official letter came from Indian Foreign Ministry to Slovene Foreign Ministry, saying, uh, your citizen Slavoj Žižek claimed that Gandhi is no better than Hitler. Is this now the official Slovene position? <laughs> I advise to answer them, not yet, but we are thinking. <laughs> Foreign language 
to express our innermost identity. And does this not put us in a position of radical alienation? Even our resistance to colonization has to be formulated in the language of the colonizer. Okay, my answer to them was first one. I thank them sincerely of, and this is typical, of neglecting the modest fact that English was also not my native language. It's okay for me to be identified. Who cares about shitty small nations like Slovenia? But they big Indians, whatever. But then my answer at a more serious level was much more aggressive. My answer is that, and now I come to the point of what Hegel meant with this, what uh, we lost is created retroactively by the very process of losing it. Uh, you Indians want to get out of colonizations and reassert some authentic core of your identity. But are you aware that it is precisely the imposition of English, a foreign language, which created that X which you feel is oppressed by it? Because what is oppressed for them is the new, the new uh, emancipated India. But this has nothing to do with the old India, uh, the old pre-colonial India. They even openly admitted to me, the pre-colonial, they don't want to return to that India. The pre-colonial India was a terrifying mess of exploitation, starvation, whatever you want. Uh, uh, the new universalist democratic India is oppressed by colonialism, but it's at the same time created, can only exist through, you know, like the paradox is this one, through colonization, you don't really lose your pre-colonial identity. You lose something much more precious, which is created only through this colonialist oppression. Uh, uh, incidentally, then some of them, which became my friends, even gave me the supreme proof of this. There is, uh, I forgot the name of the book, of, they had some old Indian legislation, the book of, sorry I forgot, which is all the rules of castes and so on are there. But you know what I discovered from them? They told me that. Far from being part of old English tradition, this book, which is the very model of traditional caste India, was put together by Indian British colonizers to have the tools to control Indians in their own terms. So, back to my example here of uh, India. I think that Malcolm X, whom I appreciate very much, the one played by Denzel Washington and so on, was aware of this when he adopted X as a name. And I read some of his texts where he makes it very clear. This X, what we lost in being enslaved, colonized, are not our African roots. He said, fuck the African roots and so on. It's an X which paradoxically we become aware of precisely when, through brutal colonization, we were torn off from our ethnic roots. Okay, for Malcolm X, a problematic move, he found this X in Islam. But it's precisely Islam as 
universalist, nothing to do with African roots and so on and so on. So you see my point, this is for me the Hegelian dialectical process, to put it in very simple, simplified way. At the beginning, you have not some authentic, immediate, substantial unity. You have just the pre-colonialness, which you have simply to measure in totally different terms. It's a society not good, not bad, it's different. And it's usually very confused. Then colonizers come and, of course, brutally impose on you foreign language, foreign way of thinking, and you feel deprived. But what you don't know is that what you are deprived of is not what you really lost. This very deprivation creates a much stronger universal, let's say, true freedom X. And uh, so uh, I, I claim that uh, precisely uh, this is why I told them the way for you to really emancipate yourself is not to drop English language and to return to some primordial thinking and so on and so on, but to beat the colonizers in their own language, which is now even happening. You know, I spoke with some American conservatives which were horrified, and I think they were right to be horrified. They told me, okay, English is now a world language. But it's not really our American English. What is now the worldwide English is something formed by, by Chinese merchants in Singapore who speak English and so on, you know. This is the beauty of global capitalism, which I like. It's not that we are all losing trying to speak English. Even English language itself is taken from, from the English ones. Okay, a more theoretical Hegelian point, which concerns this divun, devun, and so on. Uh, I think the experience of English language as an uh, oppressive imposition obfuscates a much more traumatic fact. And here I follow Jacques Lacan that every language is a parasitic foreign incubator. If there is a point which Lacan made, in a justified way, is that the relationship between human, animal, and language is parasitic. Language is not our spontaneous mode of expression. There is always a traumatic gap, called in psychoanalysis with different, by different technical names like symbolic restoration and so on. The point is language hurts. There is no natural symbiosis. That's why I agree with Alfred Jelinek, whom I otherwise don't like as a writer, when other people me, Morris, who wrote somewhere that uh, language in itself lies, that you have to talk some language to make it tell the truth. So again, uh, I think that uh, the problem uh, that uh, the, the, the problem with this experience is English as an imposed language is that you obfuscate the fact that there is no natural language, there is no mother tongue. Every language is basically opposed. There is a gap between subjectivity and language, which is why it hated me this. In a wonderful passage here, you see that Hegel was a genius. He says, as if 
criticizing in advance Heidegger, he says that it was a high point of historical wisdom, wisdom of history, to have Latin and not Greek to become the lingua franca. Because Greek language with all its Hegelian authenticity and so on would precisely be too suffocating. What's so great about Latin is precisely that it's a kind of a much more cold language, it's not authentic language, and so on and so on. So, uh, 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 what, uh, what, is, what follows from all this? Uh, if I propose this in a very abstract way, I will finish soon as a model. That, you know, the first, the first step of the electrical process in Hegel is not there was an immediate identity, it's the loss itself. And then, but the two steps of the electrical process is first, you experience a loss, but you live in the illusion that we should, you should somehow to return to what you had lost. That what you lost was really there before the loss. And what Hegel calls reconciliation is simply when you accept fully the loss itself. As like Versöhnung for Hegel is not getting over sin, but to accept sin as the very medium of. Uh, uh, freedom, virtue, and so on and so on. Uh, let me conclude through another two jokes and then a little bit of politics. You know, people usually claim that there is an ambiguity in Hegel's dialectical process that it cheats. Either the reconciliation it falls, or it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't refer to the same object. What do you mean by this? The most elementary form of so-called trial are and I think they are the biggest contribution of the United States to world culture, the so-called uh, doctor jokes, I love them. You know, like, you go to a doctor, he tells you first bad news, then good news, no? There are two main types, I analyze them, of these jokes. One is, uh, the bad news is the same as the good news just from a different perspective. Like, you know, it's a classic one, like, I have a doctor who comes to me, first bad news, then good news. I said, bad news, okay, you have cancer, you will be dead in two months. They will ask, oh my God, what can be the new good news? And I tell you, well, the good news are that we discovered that, that you also have heavy Alzheimer's, so you will forget the bad news before you return home. <laughs> it's basically the same. But then, there is another person. Here, obviously, it's a false reconciliation. But there's another one where there is a reconciliation, but in a different direction. It's that, and I love this one because it's vulgar in my style. It's that, uh, you come to me and again, sorry, I need and ask me, okay, bad news, good news. I say, okay, bad news, you have cancer in two months, you are dead. Okay, but what are then the good news? And I say, ah, the good news. You see that nice nurse there? I wanted to sleep with her for two years, yesterday she said, yes, you are fucking like crazy all the night. So, it is good news, but for you, <laughs> for me, no? And, okay, the idea is that Hegel's persona is caught in this duality, that Hegel achieves. No. I think that the true model is, it was told to me recently, the third type of a, which is really desperate. You get only good news, but they are so
so bad that you don't even need the bad news. A friend, American doctor, told me, Sorry. You can't do that. First, bad, I told you, okay, you choose first good news. Okay. I tell you the good news. No? The good news are, uh, your name will be soon a household name all around the world. They will name a disease after you. I prefer not to hear the bad. So, more seriously, uh, uh, what I want, uh, uh, to return to my main uh, line, uh, why Hegel today? So, in a very confused way, I agree with I just try to, in a very abstract way, because I'm well aware that in strict Hegelian terms, even if I use these pseudo-concrete examples, it was very abstract, what I was telling here. But just recall this simple idea that we don't get substantial identity split and then some magical reconciliation coming together. No, we begin with the fall and we end up by accepting fully the fall. That's what Hegel is saying again and again. Yes, guys is the wound, the wound of nature and you don't overcome it. There is no unity with nature. You just discover that I don't know, nature is already in itself denaturalized or whatever. You fully accept uh, the wound. Uh, this is why I claim the typical Hegelian situation. Now I'm back into uh, philosophy, just to conclude, no, sorry, politics. The typical Hegelian historical moment is not this elderly Marx Heidegger moment of chaos, you know. We are approaching the zero point, things are really bad, but, but there is the end, the light at the end of the tunnel, things will turn better. I think Hegel's typical moment is precisely when this reversal, Gefardas Rettende phase. Things were bad, you get French Revolution, but things turn almost even worse. And then the Hegelian greatness is to demonstrate how even if things turn bad after liberation, it was still worth how to find, as it were, victory in defeat itself. In the, in the sense that, let me give you another example here, I think that Hegel was much more a thinker of contingency than Marx. For Hegel, it would never have been permitted to occupy, it would have been too idealist for Hegel in the back sense, the position occupied by Marx, which is, I know the logic of history, which gives the objective possibility of communism, and I perceive myself as an agent of historical necessity, in the sense of, even if it's not necessity, but just as Lukács would have called it, objective and know that, like, I can, as you can step on my shoulder, I can see where I stand in history, and I can act accordingly. For him, it's is too idealist, it's prohibited. That's why he said, philosophy cannot think into the future, it only can paint grey on grey, and the whole book is now written by a very intelligent Canadian young Hegelian, Rebecca Comey, what this pathology means, grey on grey. The philosophy only paints grey on grey. But uh, so what I want to say is that uh, 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 
Wat gaat er niet met verzoening? Is nog al. Nou, want verzoening simpel niet dat je moet perceive in wat appears to you as an obstacle, at the same time also the condition, the very ground of your freedom. Like, the verzoening for today's Indians is simply to admit that the imposed Indian colonial language which oppresses them is at the same time the very thing that opens up the prospect of emancipation for them. This is Hegelian verzoening. No ideal solution, the battle goes on. I think that Hegel's unification of subject and substance absolutely does not mean this Fichtean, Jan Lukacs, Marxist, that the subject dominates, swallows the substance or whatever. No, it's a much more refined position. What Hegel is saying is that, of course, there is no in itself. There is no substantially higher destiny which controls us. But this does not make us masters of our universe. Precisely what we cannot, we cannot dominate history, not because there is some higher power which is impenetrable to us, but precisely because there is no decoder, there is no higher power. We are, as it were, condemned to contingency, condemned to, uh, condemned to freedom. So in the sense, I claim, as the Hegelians, we have to accept a basic alienation. But it's not this Marxist alienation where you have the specter of fate, capital, whatever. The trick of hell is that precisely when you overcome this standard alienation, like thinking there is a higher force, social substance, God, whatever, that controls you, when you see that there is no higher agency pulling the strings, the alienation is not overcome. It's at that point that you are uh, that you are effectively, uh, it's at that point that you are effectively dissented. Which is why, now, just to conclude, uh, if Hegel is not something, he is not a cynicist. The biggest wisdom of Hegel is the necessity of the illusion. That's what we have to learn today. However, you cannot just uh, drop the illusion. This is why I think it precisely today when many of my friends, some old leftist Marxists from Frederick Jameson to Noam Chomsky, they, it's a pretty popular theory today, they claim that we are in an era of complete cynicism, where uh, even those in power no longer take seriously their own pro proclamations. Like, if you listen to those in power, they pretend to talk about democracy, but basically they openly say it's all about power, money, uh, uh, faith, whatever you want. So, we live in a cynical era, and the idea is, who needs to break ideology critique with all this complex reading, and so on and so on. You know, like, here's the following ones. Old Marxist ideology critique tried to use uh, this, uh, to discover a particular content behind false ideological universality, like you as a bourgeois, you preach human rights, and I come as a Marxist, no, your human rights are really the rights of privileged white 
queer uh, white minority male and so on, like you know. To denounce false universality is really based on a privileging a particular content. But already in Marx, Marx knew well that this is not the true power of ideology, that cynicism is false. The thesis of Marx is beautiful here already. It is not only, people only remember this part of Marx, denounce false ideological views, like we talk about freedom today. But don't we see when we impose our freedom on Egyptians, on Iranians, that we are cultural imperialists, that our freedom privileges our values? Yes, that's one side. But Marx also knew something much more interesting, that the opposite is also true. We are not only much more particular than we appear to do, we are also much more universal than we appear to do. The reality of capitalism is universal. Fictions are universal, fictions are not strongest. What do I mean by this? It's an insight well formulated by Hegel. Let's take a brutal cynic who says, oh, who cares? Screw democracy, it's all really about money, power, and so on. It's totally wrong to see, to think that this is brutal power discourse and they know what they are doing. No, they don't. Precisely when you think you speak the brutal language of open, realistic egotism, you are most blinded. A proof, if you want one. Everywhere, just look, from Hitler. You know, I read, you should do it maybe, Hitler's Mein Kampf, with a specific view. I asked myself while reading it a very simple question, stupid one. Did Hitler believe in what he was writing there? And the answer is clear and unambiguous, yes and no. On the one hand, Hitler was consciously manipulated. You know, he says often, like in those famous passages where Hitler says, if you repeat a lie often enough, it will... So he was manipulated. But what's so terrifying is then that you can almost see the passage says, as it were, although he knows he manipulates, all of a sudden he falls into his own trap and, and believes it. Well, let's take a modern example. The financial crisis of 2008. Who caused it? Sorry, it's not some crazy welfare state idealists. It's precisely the most cynical capitalist who thought we are brutal realists. We just, uh, we just do what uh, they caused it. They live in illusions. What brutal cynics don't see is that precisely in their egotist brutality, they follow fictions about money circulation and so on and so on. And here, I think, again, we can learn a lot from Hegel. Because this is, I think, Hegel's problem. Hegel does not renounce emancipatory activity and so on and so on. Hegel just prohibits this, as it were, eschatological certainty. Like, you do what you want, but be, and you have to do what you want, but be aware that history is an open process whose meaning is decided retroactively, so there is no guarantee. You cannot control in advance the symbolic effect of what you are doing. So, to really conclude with the reference to one, I think, of the most beautiful texts of German literature, also, you know the short text, some ten pages, of Heinrich von Kleist, 
über einige Kurzbewaltsam It's a short text with a wonderful thesis. It takes examples from literature, from his private life, from French Revolution, of how all great thoughts emerge by mistake. You want to say something, you get lost, and then you terribly impro improvise, you start to climb out of the ship trap you fell into, and at that point, that in these wonderful examples of how you say something, you say too much, and then you have to improvise to say it, and that, so that in other words, all great thoughts emerge by chance. It's a deeply, it's, I claim, a deeply Hegelian, a deeply Hegelian text. Because, for example, this is why we should, at least, even return to Hegel's reading of Antigone, which is usually dismissed as too simplistic, Antigone versus Creon, it's much more complex. But the reason I like Hegel's reading of Antigone is, do you know that he, and he's so right, I think, I have a problem with Antigone, I hate it, because he sees clearly where Antigone already becomes a comedy. First, when you have this retroactivity of meaning, read Hegel's reading of Antigone closely. Uh, Antigone, in a very Hegelian way, discovers what she, the reason why she is doing what she is doing, only through doing. At the beginning, she gives that bullshit that we all like to quote, you know. There are uh, immortal, unwritten laws with laws, we don't know from where, which tell us to bury properly the dead. But that's not it. It's only later, remember, that she gives the real reason. That traumatic part, which was a horror from, for everyone from Goethe to Judith Butler, who also doesn't like it in her book on Antigone, where she says, it's only for my brother. Remember that famous passage which is such a trauma for humanitarian readers who want to see Antigone as uh, uh, her struggle as symbol for struggling for all the oppressed. No, he said, if it were to be my children, I can make other children. My parents, no, 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 it's only she limits her case to her brother. It's a very traumatic point. But she discovers this only through doing it. Uh, again, I think that this is the lesson of Hegel. We have to take a risk to do it. Today, to fight capitalism, all that, blah, blah, blah. But without this theological necessity that we know what will be the outcome. So, to really conclude now, <laughs> maybe you know the joke, but cannot resist the uh, same again. I think that Hegel missed something. I'm sorry if you know this story, what to do with Antigone, really. I would like to imagine a Hegelian rewriting on Antigone, a kind of a Hegelian drama, Antigone for today. It would be something like Tom Tickwer, Lohrend, or Brecht, Gasager, Manisager, Gasager, Zweig, three versions of the story. The first story would have been Antigone that we know. In the big dialogue, which is the middle of the play, conflict, strife, as it were, between Antigone and Creon, Creon 
Greens, okay, we know the story. I will not repeat it. Then in my second version of Hegelian negation, Antigone would have won. She would have convinced Creon that, okay, nonetheless, back in those unwritten laws, better to respect them, let's bury Polynacos. And in my version, as Creon knew it, I always had the respect for Creon, uh, uh, it would be catastrophe. Uh, because of this, there would have been a new civil war, and all of Tebe, of the city, would be in fire. And in my second version, the last image of the play would have been Antigone wandering around and quoting their headlines, you know, but I was created for love, not for hatred, and then the chorus answering her, well, fuck you, bitch, that's what you have seen, because of your stupid insistence, the whole city is in the ruins. Hegel would have laughed, because Hegel likes this example of catastrophic consequences of pathetically high attitude. Then the proper Hegelian version, third version, it's not a reconciliation between Antigone and Creon. No, 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 no. Here comes the Stalinist. While Antigone and Creon are fighting, Chorus, which is usually the voice of stupidity, you know, always conformist, steps forward, establishes itself the Chorus as some kind of Jacobin committee for public uh, salvation, arrests them both, like you are ruining our country for your uh, feudal conflicts, both Antigone and Creon are arrested, and Revolutionary Committee calls establishes people's democracy. <laughs> 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 the conclusion of Antigone. Thank you.